it is my pleasure to welcome back Spec as the presenting sponsor of Fraudology this quarter. Stay tuned for more information and updates on their product capabilities, or click the link in the episode description to request your personal demo of Spec's TrustCloud platform. Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. So it has been a little while since I've shared recent fraud news on the podcast. That's not necessarily because there hasn't been news by any means. It's just there's been so many other things to cover. I especially thought it was important to really go into false declines over three episodes last week and the week before, because as you'll learn actually next week, when Shoshana Marini joins me on the podcast, we are going to share some of the results of the Fraudology Benchmarking Survey. Finally, we'll talk a bit about why you can trust that data and how much work we put into it and really how proud we both are of it, which for both of us as perfectionists and overachievers, we that's kind of rare. But really, at the end of the day, we want to share what we learned from it. So that will be both episodes next week to look forward to. And I think that once you hear more about the approval rates and the chargeback rates and the different things we learned, in addition to the false positive results that I shared two weeks ago, you'll understand why I dedicated so much time to that one. But as I was thinking about all the different things that we need to be aware of when fighting fraud, it's obviously overwhelming. I know it's overwhelming for you. The bulk of your time has to be spent managing the fraud internally, understanding your fraud internally and your business and the different systems and navigating the different departments that you need to work with and all of that. And I know that many of you try to share information with your peers when you can, whether that's at a conference or regular scheduled calls, or just when there's something that's weird that you want to learn more about and you want to reach out to either a competitor or a company that's similar to yours to learn how they're dealing with it or what they're seeing. And the reason I created Fraudology was to support you with that, right? To help bring very smart people in fraud to this podcast to share parts of what they're working on and what they've learned. And obviously, it's never going to be as detailed as you might learn if you were in a room with them. But I sure have gained so much knowledge and just really learned different ways of doing things, better ways of doing things, of thinking about things, perspectives. More than ever, we're seeing fraud cross verticals. So, you know, a type of fraud that maybe online gaming or other high risk verticals saw all the time is now hitting lower risk verticals. So the cross-pollination of information is just so important. And then I also, speaking of cross-pollination of information, I gather a lot of tidbits from so many conversations that are off the podcast that I often like to share, like in the episode a few weeks ago about the recruitment of insiders for refund fraud claims and how that is really wreaking havoc, different things like that. So the reason I go back on that is because another aspect of fraudology that I really, this is why I'm kind of coming back to my roots, that I feel like I haven't provided in a while, but that's also important, is sharing recent fraud news and talking about how that impacts your business or how that can impact or, wow, this or what this means, right? Maybe it's like in one of the articles I'm share today, it's oh, talking about deep fakes as a service and how cheap they are and how easy it is now. That's terrifying. But isn't it better that you know that that's possible 
So if, you know, you have a policy of video chatting someone to verify their identity, which I don't think really happens very often, but the selfies and the video selfies, those types of things from a scalable technology is, it's important that you know that. Or if you work for an online dating site, so if you work for a bank and you see a large transfer and you talk to the account holder and they say, well, I talked to them, I was on video chat with them, and they're a real person. You can know, well, unfortunately, deep fakes are out there. It's only $150 to create one, a deep fake video. And I'll go into more details on that today. So that's really, you know, what fraudology is about, right? The science and study of fraud. And I get overwhelmed because I want to tell you everything that you need to know always, but I know that that's not even possible. So I'll just keep focusing on what I can, and I hope that you all do the same. These are the topics, the stories that I'm going to share. I'll give you the headlines, and then I have one other note, and then we'll dive in. So the first headline, this is fascinating. So two people were arrested with 1,764 fraudulent gift cards, and they may be part of an organized ring. Now, I know for a fact, from doing my own research after reading this article, that we can just take the May out of it. They are. The next one is if your bank texts you to warn you of fraudulent charge, it's likely a scammer. So now of all things, like who wanted to, we are the most impersonated people in the world, essentially. Maybe that's a little bit more of a stretch, but Elvis impersonators used to be a thing. Now it's fraud analyst impersonators because scammers know that banks reach out and so do e-commerce companies and there's a level of trust there and there's a level of oh thanks so much tell me what to do so that i'll go over a little bit more and then as i alluded before there's a company in china called tencent cloud and they announced deep fakes as a service for only 145 dollars so a little bit of an eclectic mix of articles but definitely a lot to learn from. And before I dive in, I just want to share that next week we're going to have Shoshana Marini, co-author of Practical Fraud Prevention by O'Reilly Publishing and dear friend of mine and friend of the Fraudology podcast. I'm going to have her on to talk about some of the results from the first annual Fraudology Benchmarking Survey. You guys, I'm so excited about this and it is rare for myself or Shoshana to be like genuinely proud of something. That doesn't mean that we don't do good things. It's just that we don't really have time. We just move on to the next and we're such perfectionists. But we have worked on this for eight months and cannot wait to share with you all the things that we thought through to make sure that you can trust this data and use it in multiple ways and how to functionalize this data and use it really to help you do your jobs better, as well as just we're going to dive into some of the topics and you will be enlightened, I'm sure. There were some surprises. There were some that weren't, but it's so important for us to have data to back up the things that we know in our guts, especially when we're talking to people who aren't in fraud. They just sound like, oh, you're just talking from your gut or your intuition. Okay, how can I trust that? Versus, well, based on this study, other companies of our size are here and here. So we need to work harder or look, we're doing better. So I cannot wait for that. I'm plugging it because I hope that you are subscribed to the podcast so you'll be alerted when it comes out. Admittedly, I have not been posting on LinkedIn as much about episodes. It is completely just, I have meetings in the morning because of the West Coast time zone and I just often forget about it. So I that is no excuse, but really important to have you subscribe to the podcast so you're not waiting on 
hearing from me. Plus, you can listen to it sooner, like some of you who listen to this on your morning runs on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Uh, I was actually thinking about Tuesday's episode and how it was a little longer. And I was like, well, I think a few of them will just listen to the first half on Tuesday and the second half on their run on Wednesday. <laughs> All right, so let's dive into these articles and what we can learn from them. As I said, I admit I chose these stories. It's not because there aren't so many more, unfortunately. Uh, but because I think there are things that we can learn from them, whether directly tied to your job or just something to store in the back of your mind that might be helpful later. So this first article is titled Pair Arrested with 1,764 Fraudulent Gift Cards. And the journalist thinks that they might be part of an organized ring. So here's a summary of that. So two individuals, I'm afraid I'm going to get them wrong. So the say how to say their names. So I'm just going to say JJ and CL. And obviously the links to these full articles will be in the show notes. So I think what's more important than their names is the story. But I will say they are very strongly Chinese names. So that's why I just, I don't want to, I don't want to butcher them. So I butcher the names. So JJ and CL were arrested. One is a male, one is a female. Were arrested and charged with multiple offenses related to counterfeit gift cards. The arrest took place in Gainesville, Florida after a traffic stop conducted by the Alachua, I hope I'm saying that right too, county sheriff's deputy and a detective. So these almost 1,800 fraudulent gift cards would not have been known about, nor would anything that I'm about to tell you about the way that they did, the way they conducted this fraud. And it was, it is in store, but because there are so many companies that listen to this that have store operation, physical gift cards, I think it's very important. So yeah, they wouldn't have been known otherwise. That's one thing that I thought was interesting. So both were found in possession of more than 50 counterfeit gift cards with intent to defraud over $50,000. They were also charged with 1,764 counts of possessing stolen gift cards. So 50 were counterfeit. They hadn't ever been true gift cards. They were making their own. And then the 1,700 were stolen gift cards. During the traffic stop, a narcotics certified canine unit detected the presence of narcotics in the car leading to the search. In addition to the discovery of marijuana or odor, law enforcement officials found numerous gift cards in boxes and containers. One of the boxes had a shipping label addressed to CL in Brooklyn, New York while an address associated with JJ was also linked to law enforcement databases. The vehicle's GPS indicated a destination of a Target store nearby. Further inspection of the car resulted in the discovery of a backpack containing tools and electronic accessories commonly used to fraudulently alter and repackage gift cards. The altered cards belonging to brands like Target, Prepaid Visa, American Express, Macy's, and Apple had scratched off numbers and damaged magnetic strips. The magnetic strips encoded numbers differed from the printed numbers on the front of the cards. Something important to note. A total of 1,764 altered and forged gift cards valued at over $158,000 were found, along with an additional 208 cards whose alteration could not be determined. So maybe they hadn't altered those yet. The known value of the latter set that they couldn't tell had been altered was $10,500, but only 77 cards displayed dollar amounts. The rest are, you know, load your own, right? Or load whatever amount you want. Investigations revealed that one of the stores has been experiencing organized gift card fraud. I would argue all of the large stores are experiencing organized gift card fraud in different ways, but perpetrated by a group of individuals of Asian backgrounds. 
The scheme involves stealing gift cards from stores nationwide, shipping them to a different location for re-encoding and repackaging, and returning the modified cards to different stores. Funds loaded onto the re-encoded cards would be directed to the criminal's bank account, resulting in declined transactions for unsuspecting customers. So I want to just clear something up here. When I first read this part, where funds loaded onto re-encoded cards would be directed to this, the criminal's bank account. So they put the card, they steal a card from one state, they alter it, then they put it back on the shelves of the same store brand in another state. And then once a customer reloads it, not reloads it, loads it to give a gift usually to someone or for themselves, then the way I was reading this was that somehow the way they altered the card just directly put the funds on the gift card into their bank account. I verified this with someone who definitely is familiar with this case, who I really hoped it could come on the podcast to talk about this in depth, but it is an ongoing investigation. So hopefully, and then it could be a while, but once this is no longer an ongoing investigation, hopefully they can come talk a lot more about this and what they discovered and how all of this came together. Because it's a really good story about merchant collaboration as well as bank collaboration too. But what I learned from this person who knows about it is that's not exactly, so that's not exactly what's happening. What's happening is once funds are loaded onto the re-encoded cards, uh, the ones that have been altered, well, those fraudsters are watching the balances on all of those cards, right? They have all the numbers that they need. They may be using bots. However, they're using it. They're checking the balance a lot. In some cases, for some systems, they might be able to set up alerts for themselves when funds are loaded onto these cards. In other cases, they're contacting these stores on a regular basis to find out if there are funds on the card yet. Once there are funds on the card, and presumably even if they're doing it once a day, usually that's not enough time for someone who's buying a gift card for someone to give it to another person and have that person spend it. So they are then transferring the funds off of those gift cards and put it, moving them into their bank account. So I just wanted to clarify that. But when unsuspecting customers, the people who got gift cards from the people purchasing it, go to spend those gift cards. You know, I give gift cards out to my nieces and nephews quite often, right? I could just see one of them being so excited to buy a new video game and then going to the counter, trying to use it and being told there's no money there. So one of them, one of the people's going back to this article, admitted to responding to a job vacancy online from a Chinese website where he was instructed to collect the cards and re-encoding equipment and transport them to various drop-off points along the East Coast. He claimed to not personally steal any cards or reintroduce modified cards into stores, but participated to earn money while on vacation with his girlfriend, JJ. JJ, on the other hand, invoked her right to counsel and did not provide any answers during the interview. Homeland Security is reportedly involved in the investigation. Both CL and JJ have no prior criminal history in the U.S. The judge set bail at $88 million, which amounts to $50,000 for each count against them. So that's massive as far as bail goes, and that's good progress. However, they're just the tip of the sphere, and they're obviously pretty low level in this scheme. I know from talking to people who know about this that this is a very large case. It's spanning across lots of multiple large companies, as well as card brands and the banks that provide the prepaid cards or gift cards, and it's causing a lot of problems. So how would you know if your company was impacted by this? 
probably the first thing that would happen is that you would see a spike in customer contact or complaints through your stores saying, I received this gift card from my aunt, from my grandmother, from my parents, whoever, or I bought this gift card for myself. So I would limit how much I spend at this store or whatever that is. Some people are buying gift cards to get extra fuel points because to stores that they know that they're going to spend money at so that they can save more money on fuel. That to me, takes too much math and tracking, but that is one use case where people are buying gift cards for themselves. There's also a whole group of, very large group of people that are underbanked and that often are using prepaid cards to make purchases. So you would hear from these customers saying, hey, I bought this from your store. I paid for it or my aunt paid for it, my grandmother paid for it, et cetera. And now there's no money on it. I Definitely recommend telling people who buy gift cards that they need to keep the receipts now more than ever. I've been guilty of not keeping the receipts, but that's the first thing that I think of to prove that it was bought. But if you're hearing that quite often, then it's good to get investigations with your in-store loss prevention and you'll see activity, hopefully, of people stealing just blank gift cards. Well, then they'll alter them for different reasons. Oftentimes, sometimes the altering is just scratching off the numbers. So they have the pin and they have the number. Other times it's a little bit more sophisticated and that's where I'm going to leave it. They do talk a bit about damaged magnetic strips on here and how the encoded numbers differed from printed numbers, things like that. But those are all things to be aware of. And if you believe that your company is being hit as part of this and you're not speaking with law enforcement, highly recommend reaching out to Homeland Security. And because I think there'd only be a few of you, you can reach out to me and I can get you in contact with the other people that are involved in this investigation. Obviously, after I vet you and make sure that you work for one of those companies. So that is definitely interesting and scary as well. The next article, the title is, if your bank texts you to warn you of a fraudulent charge, that's likely a scammer. So isn't that great? I don't know. I probably shouldn't joke that people want to BS because they don't, but they want the trust, right? And for scammers that contact consumers directly, whether it's over the phone or in text messages, this is a very good way to do it. I mean, I think I've shared this was like three or four years ago when my bank in quotation marks contacted me about fraudulent charges. And I had had fraudulent charges on one of my cards, but I'd already taken care of it. It was like a week or two later, but they wanted to confirm that I had received the new card and they wanted me to read off the numbers of that new card to them. So chances are they bought my card on some list. They tried it in card testing, got a $0 author, got a decline. So they then, you know, look up the first six digits. What's the name of the bank? Okay, we're going to impersonate them. Let's get this person's phone number. Okay, yep, easy to do. And we'll call and just say we're from that bank. Thankfully, I knew enough to ask enough questions where I, I'd be, honestly, after the first two, I was like, oh, you're so full of it. So then I decided to play along a little bit because why not? But anyway, now it's happening via text messages at very high volumes. Sometimes it is the actual bank that the person banks with. Sometimes they're just fishing with a really wide net and they'll say they're from bank ABC, whether people bank with them or not. Just hoping that, okay, this bank is so big that a lot of people will. The summary of the article reads, the Federal Trade Commission in the U.S., so the FTC, has issued a warning about the rise of bank impersonation in fraudulent text messages. According to a report released by the FTC, bank impersonation has become the most common type of fraudulent text messages used by scammers, resulting in, I'm going to add, at least 
because we know that not everything is reported. 330 million in reported consumer losses in 2022. It's probably 10 times that at least. Sardine is now sponsoring Fraudology. And one of the reasons I've been so impressed by Sardine is their founder, Soups Ranjan. You'll hear my full conversation with him in the next few weeks, and you'll get to hear about some of his experiences and his passion for fraud fighting for yourself. But the TLDR, or the high-level summary, is that he started out as a fraud fighter with an engineering and data science background, and he was tasked with quickly identifying a fraud solution for one of the fastest-growing companies in the relatively new and high-risk crypto industry almost a decade ago. But after learning about the available options for online fraud detection, he became frustrated with the existing tools on the market. And as fellow fraud fighters, I think a lot of us know exactly the kind of tools he was frustrated with. The legacy fraud tools that just return a score or a signal or a yes, no, maybe without your team getting to understand all of the aggregated data or the value attributed to each data point that goes into calculating that score or the vendor who won't give you your company's data for your own models and their own user interface was probably an afterthought. And let's be honest, Soup wasn't the only one who's been frustrated by the status quo in fraud technology. But not all of us are able to rage quit our jobs, recruit a few of the smartest risk engineers we've ever known, and go build a fraud platform that is truly built by the fraud squad for the fraud squad. A platform for KYC, AML, and payment risk all in one product that lets the client company decide how to best use the massive amounts of data that's available to them. And that's pretty much exactly what Soups did a few years ago. And the result of those efforts has become one of the fastest growing solution providers in fraud that I've seen in many years. And that company is Sardine. To learn more about Sardine or to book a personalized demo, you can go to www.sardine.ai or just click the link at the top of the description for today's episode. This amount is double the successful theft from such text messages in 2021. So they are doing this at even a higher volume because it works. Scammers may take advantage of people's tendency to quickly respond to incoming texts by crafting messages that appear to be from well-known banks like Bank of America or Wells Fargo. These messages often ask recipients to confirm or deny suspicious transactions, such as a purchase at a specific retailer for a large amount. If the recipient responds, scammers may follow up with a phone call impersonating the bank's fraud department or provide a phone number for the recipient to call. And then once that happens, they then will be asked for more information, you know, to verify their bank account number, to verify their credit card number, whatever that is, so that they can then defraud them. So the summary goes on to say to protect oneself from bank fraud scams, it's important to be aware of these tactics. Rather than immediately responding to such messages, individuals should review their transaction history to verify any pending transactions. So just checking your bank account. Is there really a purchase from there on my history? I have had to instruct my mother of this over the last few months because she was receiving these. And you know, in one case, she didn't have a bank account with that bank, but a family member did. And she is on the account as a not co-signer, but joint account from a bank account. So she was concerned it was for that family member. And I said, well, have you logged into online banking to find out if there even is a transaction from that? And she said, well, why would they lie about that? That's easy to check. Well, a lot of times the, the lies that are believed the most are the ones that can be can easily be checked because people know 
you they, that's what you think, right? Oh, I can easily check that so they wouldn't make that up. Well, they do. So that's the first part. It's also advised not to review transaction history and verify any pending transactions and contact their bank using the official phone numbers provided on their statements or cards. It is also advised not to click on any links in suspicious text messages as they could potentially load malware onto the recipient's phone. And I talked about some scary malware about a year ago. I think I need to talk about that again soon as it's been coming up more, but a lot of the malware these days are programmed to pick up full login information. So whenever you go to a login site, they are transmitting that information to the host, not just the username and password that you're using to log into a website, whether it's your banking site, whether it's you know your telco, your online shopping, whatever those sites are social media, email, et cetera. And not only are they sending username and password, they're sending the full session history. So everything about your browser, everything about your device, everything about IP and device information so that they can replicate that as closely as possible and then using emulators. And then they can look a lot like the original user that you usually have placing orders. So I feel like a lot of times our eyes glaze over and we think, oh, malware, malware, like whatever it doesn't, you know, we've been talking about that for forever, but knowing that, you know, malware is getting more sophisticated and really targeting you, right? Targeting your businesses. At the end of the day, you're going to be the one left holding those losses. It's important to know about. So additionally, individuals should avoid sharing personal information such as their social security number or any bank account information with anyone claiming to be from their bank over the phone. One of my biggest policies is I do not give out any information when I'm called. So I'm not going to verify any information when you call me. I'm not going to even provide a payment method. If I know that you are in my doctor's office, I will say, I'm going to call you back and call you back on the phone number that is registered to you, to this company, and then I will give you my credit card number. And usually I joke, you know what, like this is part of being in this industry. It's just an extra precaution. I think that's good advice we can give our parents and friends and family as well. And really just know that unfortunately, you know, and then also for your businesses, right? Know that when you are contacting customers about possible fraudulent transactions, know that they've either been warned or they shouldn't get too used to this, right? So maybe share extra information or say, I'm calling you, but I want to verify with you and tell you the amount that you last had a transaction on your account, something that only you can know and tell them why you're doing. Additionally, I think it would be good, and this is hard with 3D Secure and other things, but it would be a good idea for financial institutions to try not to send text messages about fraudulent orders, or if you do, use different language, and then clearly communicate that. I know when I log into my bank, there is a big red warning over the top, just a big red box top header of online banking recently saying that they know that people are getting text messages posing as them and then they say here's how you'll know that it's from us or we will never do that so if you're a bank that's something to think about so this last story is probably in the category of terrifying and i'm sorry for that there's a few retailers in my group that when I've shared things that are in this category, they have joked that I need to at least warn them to take a Xanax before the call or at least have a cocktail in hand. And so I guess this is kind of your warning. However, I do not encourage the use of any pharmaceuticals for anything other than what your doctor has prescribed. It's more a joke. So I feel like these days I just have to verify that. (laughs) 
or clarify that anyway. So title of this article is Tencent Cloud Announces Deepfakes as a Service for Only $145 US. I've been talking about fraud as a service for the last few years. I saw it first when refund claims fraud became big in early 2020. And I think I, I mean, I'm not going to take sole credit for this. I hadn't heard it anywhere else. I made it up, but I think other places have too or used it. It's fine. I don't think I was the first one, but really this fraud is a service market and there's really a marketplace. And because cyber criminals no longer need a Tor browser and an onion router to go on the dark web, they can just go to encrypted groups on different chats and social media. It makes fraud as a service so much easier and it essentially democratizes all different types of technology and tactics and methods to commit fraud. And just even used with refund claims as fraud, it was scary enough, but now we're seeing it in so many different ways. There's spam as a service. I mean, there's so many different things, and that might be a topic that I'll go into in a later date if that's something that would be helpful to people to kind of know what can you get as a service. But I mean, let's just be clear, anything, including deep fakes. So I first saw a fake video that allowed AI to basically try to figure out how to explain it. So David Maiman, who I've had on this podcast, and he is the head of the Cybercrime Research Institute at Georgia State University. And he's really at the forefront of what's going on and what technology and use cases are being used on the criminal side. And he posted a video a few weeks ago, I mean, it's probably over a month ago now, on LinkedIn, showing a cyber criminal demonstrating their product. So... And I'm explaining this before I get into this article because I think it'll help make sense. So it showed a fraud victim, think, and it was a male fraud victim, American, based on the accent, of his English accent, so or his accent speaking English, I should say. And to the victim, he was speaking to a young, attractive Asian woman. But what the cyber criminal was able to show from his side was that he was a fairly large, older black man. But using AI, he was talking, but what the victim was seeing was the young Asian woman in a different voice. And this guy was offering this for, I think, $300 at the time, where you could essentially, the cyber criminal could speak it themselves and in their own accent and everything else, and it would show as someone else. Obviously, you can think of that as really being effective for romance scams, as well as all kinds of other things like that. Pig butchering, if you know someone wants to show, oh no, I, I exist here, let's video chat. If you remember when I read through the example of the pig butchering scam that Asaf Kipnis kind of reverse engineered and tracked about a month ago or so, that was something that the cyber criminal that was targeting him offered. She suggested that they go onto a special app that allows video chat. I think I remember the name, but I don't totally remember. So I don't want to get it wrong. But it was one that I hadn't really heard of before, but it was a special one. And she wanted to video chat to gain trust. So he knew that she was a quote unquote real person. And for a while, I mean, for the last few months, this has really been technology that has ramped up very, very quickly with AI and other things like that. But it was still specialized for quite a while. And now, it's being used as a service. And the reason why I think it's important to talk about the 
the fees and the amount that cyber criminals pay for these services, these fraud as a services, is that it shows that there's not very much barrier to entry. If they can do this for $150, $145, and they think that they can at least scam $500 US from someone, there's an upside for them. Unfortunately, a lot of times with romance scams and pig butchering and all that, it is a long play. So it's a much higher loss. If this was, you know, if these deep fakes as a service were being offered for $500, it would be harder, right? It would be harder to justify because quite honestly, cyber criminals don't know if it's going to work until after this has been used. I don't have any sympathy for them if it doesn't work and they are out this money, but you know, it's a business to a lot of people. A lot of people that are using fraud as a service as buyers, these are business expenses. Certainly not business expenses that I think they could ever write off on their taxes or explain to their accountant. But then again, maybe they just don't have my accountant. Then yeah, then again, they also don't get receipts and oh, they don't claim the income. So there's that. Anyway, I'm going to go ahead and read this article, but I just kind of wanted to give a little bit of upfront of the context of what this is, as well as why I think it's important. So here's the summary of the article. Tencent Cloud, that's the name of a company, has introduced a digital human production platform, which offers deep fakes as a service. The platform can create high definition digital humans using just three minutes of live action video and a hundred spoken sentences along with a $145 fee. The process takes approximately 24 hours. The digital characters can be customized in terms of background and tone. And Tencent offers five different styles. The company aims to use these digital humans for hosting live-streamed infomercials and plans to build an AI plus digital intelligent human factory using a self-service one-stop platform. So essentially, you can upload a picture, you, know, you can just create your own just by uploading three minutes of a live action video, you know, of you speaking or whatever, a hundred sentences, or it's someone else speaking, however it is. And they're saying that the legitimate use is for hosting live streamed infomercials, as this is a fairly common selling channel, especially in China. But if they haven't thought about the use cases beyond this, if they haven't restricted the purchase of these to just the companies that will be interested in selling or having digital humans host live streamed infomercials like advertising agencies or whatever, that's just a really good cover. And they're probably not going to look into the other use cases. So a few other details that I thought were worth adding. The digital characters are available in half bodies or full bodies. And the service is available in both Chinese and English. Some aspects like background and tone are customizable. Interesting that it's just those two languages. Uh, the videos avoid the flat intonation and single speech rhythm that plagues traditional acoustic models by using an in-house small sample customization technology that relies on deep learning, acoustic models, and neural network vocoders. Chen Li, general manager of Tencent Cloud Intelligent Digital Human Products, that is a very long title. Said the Web Colossus hopes to build an automated AI plus digital intelligent human factory and rely on a self-service one-stop platform for production, sales, and service. So if it's all digital and self-service, there's no vetting, right? There's no looking into it or no, at least there's no sales process where you have to go through a certain process. It's just all self-service. Tencent offers five styles for its digital humans, 3D realistic, 3D semi-realistic, 3D cartoon, 2D real person, and 2D cartoon. 
Customized Q&As can be created for the digital human, turning them into a type of faked chatbot. So you can set up a customer service line looking like video chat and for a, you know, a bank supposedly, right? And just have people talk with them. There's so many use cases I'm sure you can think of too that I probably haven't even thought of or listed at least. Uh, there's several I've thought of, but I don't want to completely... Hey, I don't want to give anyone ideas, but I don't, I'm not worried about that as much as just the use cases are endless. I think the most important thing is to know that this exists. Local media also reported Tencent can create doctors, lawyers, and other professionals. So again, if the only use case is to sell, to have these fake humans sell essentially these on these infomercials, then why are they creating doctors, lawyers, and other professionals? I mean, other than, I guess, fake doctors to say that supplements work. I don't know. It's just scary to me. And this is a legitimate company that is, you know, saying all this. So the article does state that the service, and then these are in quotation marks, is regulated by the Cyberspace Administration of China to prevent misuse for illegal activities. But how they are ensuring or enforcing integrity is unknown. Certainly doesn't say this in the article. I, I would think they might want to volunteer that, but I think right now they're just saying, oh, we're regulated by Cyberspace Administration of China, so they'll make sure that we prevent misuse for illegal activities. But it also doesn't say, and I, I'm not sure how I could do the re or how I could do the research, not knowing how to read Mandarin, that to know if the Cyberspace Administration of China rules apply to usage outside of the country of China. So again, I think that the the biggest part here is just that this is available and it's not being restricted to use in China to use for live streamed infomercials. So sky's the limit. I think it's really important that we know that exists. And if this kind of technology exists, I think we all need to be very aware that many of the extra or the enhanced verification processes that many companies have, whether you're a bank or an e-commerce company, those can be faked as well. We already know that ID document verification can be faked I mean, to varying degrees. Now you can be chatting with someone who looks very lifelike, who speaks just like the real person, who can engage in a conversation with you on video or just over the phone. And it didn't cost very much money. So it's not limited to just a small group. Again, I apologize. That is in the category of terrifying. But again, I knowledge is power, right? And that's the whole purpose of fraudology is really the science and study of fraud. And fraud continues to grow at rapid rates. So as I will continue to say, because until I feel like I don't need to say it anymore, that means that we need to be growing and changing at some type of rate too. It'd be awesome if we could all grow at rapid rates, but we know it's not possible, but we should be expanding outside of where we've been. I've had too many conversations with people who are just now getting that or are still having a hard time understanding that. And sometimes it's too little too late, and at least for a while, right? It takes quite a while to put new steps in place. It's not whenever we're making big changes in our fraud strategy, it's not quick, right? It's like moving a giant ship. So it needs to be on the forefront of our minds. If these things are changing as quickly as they are, we need to be doing that as well. So I'd really love your opinion. I mean, it's been a little while since I, you know, shared recent fraud news like this episode. I'd love to know if you prefer more Thursday episodes like this one, selecting a few three to four current events or articles, sharing a summary, and then explaining why I think it's important and why it matters or how it can impact you. Or 
Do you prefer more of the deep dive episodes like the most recent ones on false declines or the episode about insiders being recruited for refund claims fraud or the other types of deep dive episodes I've done recently? Or do you like a mix? This is really your podcast. I'm just the voice and I'm grateful to be the voice. But I want to make sure that we are providing the content that you want to hear and the content that helps you the most. So I always appreciate hearing from you and receiving that feedback with the caveat that if I don't reply to your LinkedIn message, it is not because I don't want to. It's actually because I would love to just write back multiple paragraphs and I don't have time. But obviously, if you're writing me and something requires action, I will try to respond. But with feedback, it is very important and we do track it and I do read it. So I appreciate that a lot. All right, guys, with that, I am going to let you go for today. Next week's episodes are going to be so good with Shoshana Marini, so enlightening for anyone in e-commerce fraud or that supports e-commerce fraud or that's curious about how far behind e-commerce fraud is from financial institution fraud, for example, on benchmarks. There's a lot of really interesting things that we learned and it was such a rewarding process and I cannot wait until this survey is downloadable and in available to the public to download and consume. I don't have a date for that yet. It will be very soon, but Shoshana and I will be sharing some of the high level and really the most exciting results next week. So be sure that you are subscribed so you're alerted as soon as the episode comes out. Thanks so much. I will talk to you again next week. Thank you again to Spec for sponsoring today's episode. I'm really excited for more online companies to see what's possible with their fraud infrastructure. Spec's Trust Cloud is way more than just another fraud product, and I hope you'll visit www.specprotected. That's s p e c p r o t e c t e d.com to learn why.